John, lead pastor, Noel Peepcrass. Welcome to the Exeter Valley Church podcast. Our church plan started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. We'd love to have you join us Sundays at 9.30 a.m. in our historic building at 218 Pine Street. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com or visit our Instagram page. Thanks for listening. I always get a little bit sad when the uh, seats empty out. <laughs> I just want to assure you, do you know it's a sign of a healthy church when you have this many kids? I, I've like sometimes like, uh, you know, people always ask, how many people are coming to your church? That's like, you know, the question that people ask me, you know? I'm like, well, we have this many people average, I guess, on Sundays right now. A lot of them are kids. You know, I don't know. Can I count them in the total? We count them here. We count the kids. Our uh, church planning director, Tim Vink, actually says, statistically, churches that have uh, like 50-50 split, under 21 and over 21, it's a real marker of health in the life of a church. So let the children come. Let's go. We got lots of kids around here. It's a great church growth strategy. Big fan of kids, but it is sad to see them leave. They did a good job sitting and listening this morning. Isn't that, that's kind of cool, right? Get to disciple them and how to be a part of what we're doing. So uh, this morning's passage is uh, very complex, or maybe it's not complex, maybe cryptic would be a better way to describe the passage this morning. It's like the sign of Jonah, the, the, this weird story about a haunted house. It's a challenging passage. I think a lot of pastors might be tempted just to skip it and go somewhere else, but we're going right to it this morning. We're going to tackle this uh, topic, and I think... Um, there's something really profound for us. So it's about the topic of the sign of Jonah, right? The sign of Jonah, that's like the subheading uh, of this passage. Uh, I titled the sermon, Jesus, God's Sign. And I'm really into uh, neon signs right now. I like have a dream that we're going to have a neon sign someday out front here. <laughs> that's what I want to see happen, but I think they're really expensive. So we'll see. I'm getting a quote right now. We'll see yeah, <laughs> if we want to do that. Uh, but anyway, all this talk about signs, it got me thinking, you know, when I was growing up, there was this song, you guys uh, remember, uh, I Saw the Sign, Ace of Bass, I Saw the Sign, anyways, that's all I'm going to sing of it, I practiced that a few times so I could stay on key, uh, I, also one of my favorite Bible stories has to do with a sign, have you, uh, have you heard of the story of Gideon, you remember the story of Gideon, Gideon uh, heard from the Lord? And Gideon had to make sure that he'd heard from the Lord, right? The angel of the Lord comes to Gideon, and, and Gideon's like, I need a sign. So he puts a fleece out on the ground, right? And I don't know, it's like, if, this, if the fleece is wet, it means this. If it's not, you know, he really needed a sign. I, I, I actually had a point in my life where I was praying about uh, doing something. And Megan really thought that we should do it. And I was like, not really wanting to do it, but trying to be submitted to the Lord. And I, I literally put a rag on the grass uh, one night and was like, Lord, if it's wet, I'll do it. You know, give me, give me the sign. Anyway, I can relate to, uh, to, to needing a sign. Have, have you ever asked for a sign? I don't know. Like, give me a sign, Lord, that this is the one, right? Um, yeah. You know, and, and it got me thinking, you know, what is a sign? Like, at its core, what is a sign? What is a sign? I think in this situation, this context of this story, that a sign is proof right? Proof. The Pharisees, they're asking for proof, at least with their words. 
the Pharisees are, are demanding proof. Jesus, we need a sign. I think uh, these stories that we're going to look at today, they're about those moments uh, where we're maybe struggling with Jesus. Have you ever had a moment where you're struggling with Jesus and you need to hear from him? They're about those moments where sometimes, if we're honest, we can uh, reserve our commitment until he comes through for us. Have you ever been in that spot? God, I'll do this for you if you give me a sign, right? You got to show up in this way, Lord. And then I'll do this for you. But you got to show up in this way. If you come through, I'll come through. You ever had, if you're honest, have you ever had that relationship with the Lord? It's actually uh, kind of dangerous to be in this spot. It's, it's a dangerous spot to be in because when we're in this spot where we, we make demands of God, uh, we can miss what he's actually doing. And I think that's part of what's going on here. The Pharisees are making these demands of Jesus to show his divinity all the while missing what he's actually doing. <clears throat> this morning, I just want to wrestle with this question. Like, how do I respond to a Jesus who isn't showing up the way that I expect him to? How do I respond? How do you respond to a Jesus who's not showing up the way you expect him to? How about uh, that Jesus that, that's not bringing the healing that you're praying for? How about when, uh, maybe it's like an issue related to either singleness, wanting to find the person of your dreams, or maybe it's a, a marriage issue, a difficulty in marriage, and you've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed, and still resolution isn't coming, or maybe it's, maybe it's a job issue. Maybe you're praying for the faith of your kids, you're praying over and over and over again, Jesus, would you come to my kids? I don't know, what's your heartache? What do you think about when I bring these things up? In today's story, the Pharisees, they're asking Jesus for a sign. There's actually a similar, really short version of this request in Matthew 16. This request and this uh, idea of the sign of Jonah is a repeat, Matthew 16. We'll get there someday. But you know, but honestly, like the Pharisees, they're asking for a sign with their words, but they're not really asking for a sign. You get the sense that uh, if they were, Jesus would come to them with a sign. You get that sense, right, that Jesus, he's, he would provide a sign, but there's something else going on behind their question for a sign. Jesus, the all-knowing God. What, what was the word? Omniscience. The omniscient God who knows all. He knows what's in their hearts, and so it's a little bit deeper than just their request uh, for a sign. I think he might give them a sign if that's really what they needed because Jesus, he's a God of even little faith, right? We've learned that about Jesus. He responds to us even in our moments of little faith. It's not necessarily that their question is bad. It's the heart of the question that Jesus seems to be getting at in this passage. See, the Pharisees, they really already made up their mind about Jesus. Matthew 12, verse 14, we already learned that they're plotting to kill him. And he knows that. They've made up their mind about him. We've already seen the Pharisees have reached a verdict. They're not asking for a sign. They've reached their own verdict, their own conclusion. So it's not so much their request he's coming against, it's their hearts that he's coming against. And, and Matthew shows us Jesus' response to this question with three sets of stories. Stories that can seem a bit odd, but I think that Matthew put together to drive home one central theme. So we're going to see a story about the sign of Jonah, what Jesus had to say about that. 
Then he tells a little parable about a haunted house, it seems. And then finally it ends with a story about mothers and brothers. Three stories, but one flow of thought. And so Jesus responds to the request for a sign by telling them about the sign of Jonah. What is this sign, this sign of Jonah? Probably heard about Jonah, right? Jonah is one of the most famous stories in the Bible. And it's not Jonah and the whale, right? We got that down. It's just a big fish. It's not a whale. Are we all, are we all straight on that? Jonah and the big fish. Anyway, this passage, it's pretty hot. It's debatable. It's challenging. And it's certainly cryptic. By now, uh, we've seen the cryptic ways of Jesus, how he doesn't just get straight to the point. He uses parables. He answers questions with more questions. He's very artistic. He's poetic. He quotes Old Testament scripture. Jesus gets you thinking with his responses. Like I said last week, Jesus isn't, he doesn't speak in like see, spot, run type of language. He uses beautiful language, the kind of language that speaks to our hearts, not just to our minds. So Jesus is going to do some of that. <clears throat> how, how are we doing with the cryptic Jesus, by the way? Are we, are we confused? Are we okay? Are we, are we enjoying the cryptic Jesus? So here we go. Let's take a look at the sign of Jonah. Verse 39, it says, He answered their question, <clears throat> A wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, Jesus says, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. First, I wanted to say, you can see parallel accounts of this story in uh, Luke, Luke 11, uh, 29 through 32, uh, for this sign of Jonah story. Uh, this is the gospel according to Matthew. It's the good news of Jesus according to Matthew. It's Matthew's version of the story. It's not the only version. Uh, there's a lot of overlap. You'll be comforted to know. The Pharisees, uh, they seem courteous at first glance, don't they? What do they say? They say, teacher, can we have a sign, right? That's nicer than how Jesus referred to them in the last passage. Remember that, you brood of vipers? Teacher sounds pretty nice uh, in relationship uh, to that phrase, brood of vipers. But if you look beneath the surface, maybe you recognize that calling him teacher, merely teacher, it's a bit of an undercut, isn't it? He's more than a teacher, isn't he? The Pharisees weren't willing to accept him as more than a teacher, though, and so they call him teacher. And the controversy, it's really heating up, and they, they appear to be like trying to either like stump him or maybe even tempt him into responding a certain way. It has a bit of a feel, you know, that passage, Jesus in the wilderness, where Satan's like trying to tempt him. It has a bit of that feel, like they're almost trying to tempt him to appease them or to respond in a certain way. And so Jesus calls them a very harsh words, wicked and adulterous. Adultery, the, the, the word adultery literally means breaking marriage. And I think that, that that word is like, it's specific in this sense. Were they breaking marriage? Well, they were breaking covenant, right? And we know marriage as a covenant. And their response as God's chosen people to reject Jesus. I think that's what he's saying to them right here. You're breaking covenant. You're adulterous. You're breaking covenant. And we know that adultery uh, all throughout the Old Testament was, uh, was like a way that God would describe Israel's rebellious behavior, right? So we should see that wicked and adulterous, those words are very specific. Adulterous is a word choice, like I said, that the prophets used to describe rebellious uh, Israel. Um, 
And, and uh, Jesus is, he's continuing on in this like prophetic vein. He's speaking like a, an Old Testament prophet here. And what Jesus knows is that somehow there seems to be a connection between their covenant-breaking hearts and the response that he has to them. Jesus, uh, he ain't into their request. Sometimes slang sounds better, doesn't it? Jesus, he ain't having it. He's not into their request. It, it seems to be that it's not a good sign when people ask for signs. That's what it seems to be. Do <clears throat> you remember the story of Zechariah, John the Baptist's father? He, uh, he asked for a sign. Didn't go so well for him. Ended up mute, <laughs> silent, until he got things figured out. You know, who wants a sign? It got me thinking, what kind of person asks for a sign? Evidently, it's not the steady and the studious. It's the sensation-seeking, show-offs like the Pharisees that ask for a sign. They just can't get enough. Simple paying attention is not enough for them. And so they asked for a sign. And uh, Jesus' response to their request for a sign, yes, he calls them wicked and adulterous. But then he gives them the response they're looking for. He says, I'll give you a sign. You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. How about the sign of Jonah? They think back, I'm sure, the story of Jonah. You guys are all familiar with the story of Jonah. It's a really like, it's like a weird story though, right? It's much more complex than just like a, a man and a fish getting spit up. I guess that, that's pretty complex on its face, isn't it? It's like, wait a minute, a guy got swallowed by a fish? And he survived in, in the stomach for three days and three nights. That happened? That's a miracle right there, isn't it? Well, anyways, Jonah. Jonah's a real historic figure. Jonah existed. He's a real historic figure. Uh, he was a prophet. And this story in the Old Testament, the whole book of Jonah, it's like a narrative written about him. Actually, uh, you got to know that scholars are actually split. Christian commentators are split as to whether or not this is just a, like, a bit of a parable or if the story that we read in Jonah actually happened, in any event, Jesus refers to it. So that means it's important, right? Because Jesus quotes uh, the story. He, he refers back to this story. So even if it was just an allegorical parable that never actually happened, it was important to Jesus. It should be important to us. Anyway, in any case, it's a story, and it's got a moral for us, something to teach us. Like, that's what a parable is, right? A story that has something to teach us. In the story of Jonah, Jonah rebels from God, right? He doesn't go initially to Nineveh like he's been called to do. Instead, he runs, I think it's to Tarshish. I've never said that word out loud before, I don't think. I almost swore in church. <laughs> Anyways, he goes to Tarshish instead. Uh, you, you know the story. The, God sends a storm. The sailors on the boat are like, what's going on? God must have caused this. We got to do something about it. Jonah's like, yep, it's me. They throw him overboard, and the, the sea's calm. And then Jonah gets swallowed up by a fish. There for, he's there in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, it says in the story. Gets spit up, and he decides, you know, I should probably follow God and do what he's asked me to do. So he goes to Nineveh. He preaches to the city of Nineveh, which is a wicked city, a really, really, really bad city. Some have said it's like, you know, I don't know. I, I almost called out San Francisco. But, you know, it's, it's a wicked city, right? In that day and time, it was known as a wicked city. And, and what happens? The, I mean, the city repents. The Ninevites repent at the preaching of Jonah. 
Now, Jonah wasn't a great guy. I mean, he rebelled from God. And, and in this story, Jonah's mad that the city repents and that, God's grant, and that God grants them grace. So this sign of Jonah, it's interesting because Jonah's not exactly this great character. And in these verses, we actually see Jesus say, not to compare himself to Jonah, but to say, I'm a greater Jonah. I, the Christ, am greater than Jonah. Jesus and Jonah do have some parallels. Three days, three nights. You know anyone else who lived in darkness or death for three days and three nights? Jesus was about to do that. So Jesus is like, hey, I'll give you a sign. We'll call it the sign of Jonah, because I'm going to do what Jonah did. Conquer death. Come back, preach a message that leads to repentance. <clears throat> Jesus is like, yo, my life, my life, me, I'm the sign. Yo. My friend Chago starts every text message with yo. You have a friend like that? He's like, yo. <laughs> anyway, Chago, he's a good dude. Jesus is like, yo, my life, I'm the sign. I'm the sign. If you haven't seen it yet, I don't know what else I can do for you, Pharisees. I'm the sign. My life is the sign. Why are you asking for a sign? Have you not been paying attention? You need something sensational? Fire, windstorm, cloud? What do you need? I'm the sign, Jesus says. He's also alluding to what they're about to do to him, isn't he? Right? Jesus knows the end of the story. He's alluding to the end of the story by telling them about the sign of Jonah. Just like Jonah, Jesus will conquer death. He's coming back. Pretty cool when you know the end of the story. Then he goes on to talk about how others responded to God, right? In the next few verses, he, he goes on to talk about how the Ninevites responded to God. And then someone called the queen of the south. So let's take a look. Who's the queen of the south? Verse 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment, Jesus says, with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. Who is here that's greater than Jonah? Jesus is here. And he's greater than Jonah. When you start to look at the Bible this way, you'll recognize in the Old Testament, there's so much foreshadowing of Jesus. There's prophecy about Jesus, and there's foreshadowing. The story of Jonah foreshadows the coming of a better Jonah. Verse 42 says, The queen of the south, this is actually the queen of Sheba from Ethiopia, the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. Who's he talking about? Who's the one greater than Solomon? The wisest man who ever lived? Jesus. The greater Jonah. The greater Solomon is here, right here, in your midst. When the Ninevites heard from God, they heard it from the mouth of Jonah. And what did they do? They repented immediately. When the queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon, she heard from his wisdom about God's wisdom, and she worshiped God. You can read that story in 1 Kings 10. Again, Solomon, man, just like Jonah, definitely had his flaws, right? We know about the flaws of Solomon. Solomon was a bit of a pre-Christ, but certainly not perfect, not at all. But anyway, even this imperfect Solomon was used of God to lead the queen of Sheba into worship. Jesus seems to be saying, look, hey, I don't even need to be the one to condemn you. The Ninevites and their repentance, 
the Queen of Sheba and her worship. Though they, these people, both the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba, not a part of God's covenant people, right? These are outsiders, the kind of people that you would have expected not to get Jesus, the kind of people you would have expected not to repent. And yet what Jesus is saying, even these people have gotten it. Even these people have figured it out. And you, though you live in the presence of Emmanuel, God with us, you're asking for a sign because you cannot see what's actually going on. Jesus says, my whole life is a testimony. My whole life is a testimony. I'll give you the sign of Jonah. Just you wait. And and think about what's going on in their minds, right? I wonder if they're connecting the dots. The sign of Jonah, interesting. Knowing in their heads that they're plotting to kill him. Jesus says, I know the end of the story. You're plotting to kill me. And I will die for you. I will die for your sins, you Pharisees, who are calling me to question right now. Jesus says, my whole life is a testimony. Everything I've been up to, I've fulfilled the prophets. I've taught with a wisdom greater than even Solomon. I've performed miracles while here with you. I've been healing people, exercising demons. Everything is pointing to me, and yet you want a sign? Jesus knows there's nothing more that can be done. And so he says, only a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. All right, so that's the first story. To further develop his teaching, Jesus next is going to go into a parable about the conditioning of the Pharisees' hearts. So this whole haunted house parable, this is a parable. Let's try to simplify it because it seems like really complicated. The spirit's going into arid places. I got stuck for a moment on arid places trying to figure out this really complex uh, parable. You know, sometimes when you hear parables that are from a different cultural context, they don't make sense to us, right? But we have parables like this in our context. Right? We do. Uh, they, they make sense to us, but someone outside of our culture would have to do some work. And so that's how it is for us. But I want you to see this as just a parable. All right? Uh, also, um, as we read these stories, you guys, like I almost just wanted to invite you, like pretend that you've never heard about Jesus. Pretend that you've never read the stories of Jesus. Pretend you know nothing about what the Bible teaches. And come today with that fresh lens and see what you get. See what adds up when you come about it that way? Because these stories, you guys, if we don't see ourselves in these stories, we're missing the point. The point is not, oh, the evil Pharisees who are, were a wicked and adulterous generation. We are the wicked and adulterous generation. I'm part of the wicked and adulterous generation. And this is like, it's like hard to come to grips with the fact that we have a nature that's flawed. I think that's what Pat was sharing about. Like, it's hard to come to grips with this idea that I'm flawed. But if we pay attention to our lives and the things that we just cannot seem to get figured out, and if we pay attention to the teaching of the Bible, we come to this conclusion that we're in desperate need of this Jesus. Look, if you don't need a Savior, you can't have Jesus. You have to need a Savior in order to get Jesus. Who would Jesus come to save? the weary, the burdened. If you're weary and you're burdened, you can have Jesus as your Savior. He's not the Savior of those who have it all figured out. So if you're in that camp, you got it all figured out, you don't get Jesus. This is the camp the Pharisees are representing, the ones who've kept the law, 
They're like the super believers of the day, the super religious, the model citizens, the leaders, the ones who were doing it right. They had an incredible righteousness of their own. And even to them, Jesus says it's not enough. It's not enough. Your righteousness is but filthy rags. That's what Paul said. That was Paul's language. We need Jesus. We have to understand that we are this wicked and adulterous generation. So with that perspective, let's come to look at this cryptic, difficult section, verse 43. It says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. So who's this parable about? This parable is about the condition of the hearts that the Pharisees possess. Jesus has come. He's brought his kingdom. They've been seeing it. He's brought his kingdom into the kingdom of Satan. He's bound up Satan. He's delivered people's lives by his healings and his exorcisms. And yet, they remain neutral towards him. And their neutrality towards him is like a house. The hard condition of their hearts is like a house. So that when you see the house in this parable, you need to see the condition of the Pharisees' hearts. The condition of our hearts when it's pharisaical. <clears throat> it's like a house that's been rid of an evil spirit and cleaned up nicely without being filled by God's spirit, by God's presence. And in this way, though things look clean and tidy, the presence of God has not been given residence. And so their neutrality towards Jesus has made way for a deeper possession to take root. Having been with Jesus and experienced his kingdom, as it overcomes the evil of Satan, they chose not to rejoice in him as their Messiah and Lord. And in so doing, they've made a way for a deeper possession, Jesus is saying. He says it will be like seven demons have come back upon the return. Look, the final condition of one who rejects Jesus, despite seeing his kingdom ways, will be worse than the one who never knew him. We see this concept repeated by the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 2. 21 and 22, it says, it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true, referring to Old Testament scripture. A dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is, or sow, and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. Jesus says, to see me, to experience my kingdom, to clean up your heart and not replace it with me, even having, even, even having seen it. They've seen Jesus. They've seen his kingdom ways. And yet they've not committed their lives to him. It's like a sow that is washed and then returns to wallowing in the mud. This is what it is to see Jesus' kingdom ways and not repent, to see Jesus' kingdom ways and to not rejoice in him. It's like a sow that's, that's been washed and immediately returns to the mud. Here's the point. You must fill your house with Jesus. If your heart is a house, you must fill it with Jesus. Ephesians 5.8 says that we should be filled with the Spirit. It's not enough just to get rid of 
We've got to replace the emptiness with Jesus. We must be filled with the Spirit. An experience of his kingdom without a commitment to turn is not enough. An experience of his kingdom without a commitment to follow him is not enough. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, whoever's not with me is against me. Neutrality won't cut it. If he's just your teacher and not your Lord, your house is clean but empty. The only responsible relation to Jesus is one of passionate commitment. John Carrot, a, a theologian, says it this way, for the heart of a man is a house which must have an occupant. An empty, clean house, no good, Jesus says. You must be filled. <clears throat> so hopefully, uh, I just like miraculously unpacked that crypt cryptic parable. But you get the idea, the, the evil spirit is Satan's rule and reign. The house is our hearts, the Pharisees' heart condition. The condition is clean yet empty. Clean yet empty. Incredible breeding grounds for the work of the evil one, Jesus says. We must be filled. It's like, uh, has anyone ever struggled with addiction or, or had someone that they knew uh, struggle with addiction, right? In recovery groups, it's a really powerful concept. In order to overcome addiction, you take away the addictive behaviors and you replace those behaviors with something positive. This is what Jesus is saying. It's not enough to be emptied. You must be filled with my spirit. You can't be neutral towards Jesus. It's really dangerous to see his kingdom come and remain neutral. So then next we come to this really crazy story about Jesus' mother and brothers. This story might be really hard to hear if your family is really important to you. It's like super confusing. Like, wait a minute. Jesus is saying that my mother and brothers aren't my family? So what, what's happening here? Verse 46, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You can see this story also in Luke 18, I'm sorry, Luke 8, 19 through 21, and then also Mark 3, 20 through 21. So Jesus, he's got a gathering, right? People are following Jesus. He's inside of a house teaching. It says that uh, it's so full in the house. If you look at Mark 3, Mark says that the house is so full that they can't even eat. And uh, Jesus' family thinks he's crazy at this time. In fact, believe it or not, you guys, his family, we have no record that during his life, his family accepted him as Lord. We have no record that during his life, even they accepted him as Lord. After his death and resurrection, though, his family gets on board. You may have heard uh, the book of James, written by Jesus' brother. And then there's also a book called Jude. Uh, Jude was another brother of Jesus. He had four brothers, two sisters, we're told. Anyways, his family is not inside the house. It says in this passage, his family's on the outside. Oh, man, that's an interesting fact. Why aren't they in the house? Why aren't they outside? Again, go back to Mark 3, read, read the story. They think he's crazy. That's why they're on the outside. Matthew includes that little fact for us to understand that his family, his own family, has not yet accepted him as Lord. They're like not sure what to do with him. They're trying to save him from himself, it, it would seem. Jesus, oh, don't say that. Oh. 
That Messiah stuff, Jesus, just like play it down. Don't say, maybe they're thinking, don't say something that's going to get you killed. You know, they think he's crazy. <clears throat> they demand that Jesus come outside to them. And Jesus says, no. He says, no. And he says, my people are those that want to be with me. Jesus says, look, if you want to be with me, if you really want to be part of my family, you got to come inside the house. This is the response that Jesus is urging his people towards. And the response that Matthew is trying to get us to see by setting up these three stories, if you want to be a part of Jesus' family, you got to come inside the house. It's not enough even to be related to him by blood. You've got to be a part of his family by calling him Lord. This is what it means to truly follow Jesus. It means to fill your house with me, to respond to my life, which is the sign that you're looking for. Jesus says this about lordship. He who wants to gain his life must lose it. Even family ties are like subjected to the lordship of Christ. Even family ties. That's hard for us to hear because family's a good thing. I'm going to teach all next week on what it means to be a family. We're going to break from Matthew. I'm going to teach about what it means. We say we're a family on mission with God. What does that mean? We're going to talk about it. Even bloodlines have to be subjected to the lordship of Jesus. If he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. you got to step into the house. It's not enough to watch from the outside. So perhaps now you've heard me explain these three stories. Hopefully you're seeing what Matthew wants us to see. <clears throat> We've seen three responses to Jesus, the Pharisees who demand a sign. We've seen the, uh, the haunted house, the shallow discipleship who accepts a version of Jesus but not the full Jesus. We've seen the response of Jesus to his mother and brothers, their response to him as outsiders, though family, for trying to control Jesus. Jesus, could you just act a little bit more like this? Oh, Jesus, don't say that. Jesus, come with us before you hurt yourself. They want a version of Jesus, but not the full Jesus. Hard hearts, pharisaical hearts, Reject Jesus as Lord. It's this hardened condition that asks for a sign. Jesus tells us plainly this morning, you guys, he is the sign. Jesus is the sign. His life, his death, his resurrection, it's the sign that we're looking for. Jesus is the sign. And there's this paradox in this story because Jesus sent by God to die for these Pharisees and the sins that are rejecting him. He's so loving in his coming for even these Pharisees who are rejecting him. They've got hard-hearted, selfish hearts, and yet he's going to die for them. <clears throat> so here's what we can't do. Here's what we can't do. We can't make Jesus fit into our boxes we can't make Jesus exist only to meet our needs on our whims, like a sort of like genie in a bottle. I've been talking about the six portraits of Jesus that we see in Matthew 11 and 12. Today, we see that Jesus is God's sign. The, the Jesus portrait that I haven't talked about is genie Jesus. We have judge Jesus. We don't have genie in a bottle Jesus. Genie Jesus is just not the Jesus of the Bible. 
Jesus never promises to solve all our problems, you guys. If you're coming to Jesus this morning as this God who will make everything perfect in your life, you're just going to be disappointed, just like the Pharisees were disappointed. You know, he didn't come to do enough revolution. He didn't come to overthrow the Romans. He didn't come as a warrior to conquer all evil. He, he, didn't, he didn't bring wealth or riches or the kingdom that they had imagined. And in a way, this can be us as well, right? When Jesus doesn't show up to heal the way we expect him to heal. When Jesus doesn't show up to give us the marriage that we're longing for. When Jesus doesn't show up to fix our singleness or to give us a better job or a better life, etc., etc. We've all got a list, don't we? So the question is this. Do you want to keep your superficial genie in a bottle, Jesus? Or do you want to accept the sign of his life? His death and his resurrection, and come into the house with him. This is the invitation this morning. Don't stay on the outside. Come into the house with Jesus. Accept him as the sign. So what are we going to do about it? How can we come into the house with Jesus? A little application here to to close our time. Uh, You know, this difficult, somewhat cryptic passage, it got me thinking about simplicity and the Jackson 5 song came into my head. What's the song? It's like A, B, C. It's easy as one, two, three, right? Isn't that how it goes? That's all right for a bald white guy, 42 years old. Let's, let's go. Quit laughing, Bruce. I hear you. A, B, C. Here we go. How are we going to step into the house of Jesus? The first part, the hardest part for some is to admit that we need Jesus. Admit that we can't live the righteous life on our own. Admit that there's a gap between us and God because of our sin nature, because of the things that we've done, because of our nature to resist him. Our nature is to resist God. Just like these Pharisees, our nature is to to demand a sign, to miss what he's up to. Our nature is to be our own God, to formulate him into our own image, to make him out to be a genie in a bottle. We've got to admit that we've got a problem in our heart. There's something wrong. No matter how hard I try, I just can't get it all right. No matter how hard I try, I still make myself God. I still worship myself, my own preferences, my styles, my desires. That's the A. Block B. We've got to behold to believe. Some of you are going to recognize these from like 1980s evangelism, the ABCs of evangelism. You've got to behold Jesus. You gotta see him rightly to believe Jesus. If you're gonna soften your hearts, you have to see Jesus rightly, you guys. This is the, the whole conversation is about seeing Jesus rightly. Do you see him as the Messiah, your Savior? Do you see Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God? This is the key question. You've gotta see him rightly, you guys. You gotta see him not as we construct him. But as the Savior, the Bible points us towards. You cannot create a Jesus of your own construction, you guys. It will lead to destruction. If you construct a Jesus in your own image, it will only lead to your destruction. I say that to you this morning, not in condemnation, but in love. If Jesus is shaped to meet your own desires, it will only lead to your own destruction. Jesus is gentle, He's humble. His yoke is easy, and he's a savior to the weary and the burdened. He's a savior to the brokenhearted. Who gets Jesus' salvation? The weary, the broken, those in need, 
The good news for us this morning, you guys, is that if you need a Savior, you can have a Savior. If you need a Savior, you can have a Savior in Jesus. And then the C, commit. Commit. If he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all, we've got to commit to step into the house of Jesus. We've got to fill ourselves with Jesus. We've got to be filled with the Spirit. If he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. Is your house clear? Is it clean and empty like the one in Jesus' parable? Or is it filled with Jesus? Have you made a decision to step into the house that Jesus is in? Have you made a little bit of room for him? Have you tidied some things up so all's well when guests arrive? But you're still neutral, non-committal. Is that your condition right now? Is Jesus truly Lord of your house? Is today the day you need to maybe recommit your house to him? I'm open to that. So I guess all of that is to say, Jesus is the sign. I, uh, I should have a, a, we should get a neon sign that says Jesus now. Okay, so that's the next thing we're looking for here. We're going to take another offering. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Jesus is the sign. He's the sign. Step into the house with Jesus, you guys. Let's pray.